Well, as as I was thinking uh, about leaving America to go to another country, one of the things you think about is what is it like in another country? We talk about in America, we enjoy our freedoms, and we talk about freedom in the United States a lot. But the thing about freedom, as I was, it's it's a it's the text today. Freedom is the text today. And I was thinking about freedom and how do you define freedom? Like, what words do you give to freedom? And we could go, I'm sure, to a dictionary and come up with a pretty good definition. But freedom, I really believe, is a word that is better defined without words. That to really understand freedom, you need to experience freedom. I can tell you all day what freedom is, but until you've experienced freedom, it's very difficult to understand what it is. One of the most vivid times that I can remember feeling freedom was the evening when my parents dropped me off at college, when I was sitting in my dorm room, I remember sitting on my bed and just thinking, I, I get to do whatever I want. <laughs> like, there's, there's, no, there's no one I'm responsible to. There's no one I have to answer to. It's just whatever I want to do. If I want to go here, I can go here. If I want to eat Arby's, I can. I can do whatever I want. It was just complete freedom. I mean, it's the absurdity of having complete control of my evening with no guardrails or questions. I could do and be anything I wanted. I was free. Just that feeling of freedom. Another significant moment was my first day in my own classroom. I'd spent four years training to be a teacher. And my first day in my own classroom, I can remember waiting for the students to come in. I'm thinking, I'm about to teach kids. And there's not going to be anybody in here telling me that I'm doing it wrong or to save me when these kids go crazy. It was just like absolute freedom to do what I wanted and to make my own future, right? And maybe another one, and this is my last one I'll give you, was sitting in my dad's Honda Civic after my wedding and reception with my wife pulling out of the venue parking lot. I remember just the feeling, oh, we're married. Like the freedom of, okay, like this is our life now. Like I don't have to I don't have to like go answer to people any like it's it's me and you now like just the complete freedom we're about to go we're about to go on a trip now and no one's there like checking in on us like it's just us just the the full freedom all the freedom in the world and my my heart I, even as I tell those as I wrote them and now again even as, even as I talk about them I, I, my heart swells a little bit with the spark of opportunity of freedom it's like remembering how freedom feels the exhilaration of those moments and those memories. But what's interesting about freedom is that after a while, freedom starts to not feel free anymore. We start forgetting what freedom affords us. I think it's it's possible to become so entrenched in the choices of our freedom that we stop feeling free. What freedom is is that we get to make our own choices. We, we We get to go forward. We get to make our own destiny. You know, I mean, that's kind of the part of that. But we start making it so much that we, st- we start feeling captured by what we've made. The novelty wears off. I mean, this education degree that I chose and enjoyed now feels like chains. What else can I do? This marriage that was the fulfillment of my wildest dreams now feels like a prison. These jobs, these bills, these things. I'm not saying that for my, my life, just for the record. As I'm reading that out, my wife is in the kids' area, so she didn't hear it. I'll... I'll but that's possible. I want to call you this morning, and I really believe Scripture calls us this morning, not to forget the beauty of our freedom in Christ. 
don't forget the beauty of your freedom in Christ. Don't let your freedom become new chains. That's Paul's message to the Galatians here in chapter 5, verses 13 and 15. That's what we're focusing this morning. He spent four and a half chapters urging the Galatians to embrace salvation by faith alone. Reject false teaching. Hear the true gospel. It is by faith alone that you can be saved. And now he's transitioning into what to do with that salvation. When you have this salvation by faith alone, what do you do with it? Well, it makes you free. How should we live in light of our salvation, in light of our freedom? So specifically, what do we do with the freedom we receive in our salvation? Here's the main idea that we can pull from this text today. The main idea is that our freedom enables us to serve Christ by serving others. Our freedom enables us to serve Christ by serving others. Look with me in verse 13. As you get to verse 13, I hope you have your your copy of God's Word. You can use your phone. Just be in the text with me if you can. Before we get there, just before verse 13, Paul is bearing down on warning against false teachers, letting, don't let them into the congregation. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So here, you know, bad, bad company corrupts good theology. So be careful for false teachers in the church. And then in verse 13, look at this. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Can, can we pray together? Can we, let's, let's pray. God, we're so grateful for your word. We're so thankful for Galatians 5, chapter, chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, that you saw fit to have Paul write this letter to this church, knowing that it would serve your church for centuries. God, I, I pray that today as we look at your word that we would honor you by, um, by submitting to your authority, by considering how we are subjected to what is true here, God, by treasuring you above all things in this text. God, we know that these words are not dead words sitting on dead pages, but these Words are alive, they are active, they are sharper than any two-edged sword. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our freedom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is freedom in Christ? If we're looking at that in verse 13, you were called to freedom. What is freedom in Christ? I think we can look at freedom in Christ and, and understand it as no longer having to save ourselves. That's really the, the fight of every person in this life, whether they, whether they would realize it or not. The truth of Scripture is that everyone is searching for how they can save themselves. So no longer having to save yourself is, is a huge part of what freedom in Christ is. No longer having to justify our existence by our contributions, whether it's our contributions to, like, God, you need our help, or I need people to know that I'm valuable, so here, here's all the things I can do. You can imagine just... And maybe even some of you are currently feeling the weight of having to justify your value and justify your existence. So freedom in Christ is that we don't have to do that. Christ has done that for us. Christian freedom is throwing off the yoke of worldly success. Actually, I, I don't even know that it's fair to say it's throwing off. Like We don't do much throwing off in our freedom. It's Christ taking it from us. 
Here it is, Christ saying, hey, that's too heavy for you. Let me take it. I'll take your heavy yoke. But it's that it's Jesus lifting the yoke of worldly success and unrealistic and ever-increasing expectations for sex and work and achievement and sports and grades and whatever. Because what are we actually trying to achieve with those things? We're really trying to achieve only what Christ can do. I love what John Stott says about Christian freedom. Here's how he defined it. John Stott said that Christian freedom is an unrestricted liberty of approach to God as his children. Christian freedom is an unrestricted liberty of approach to God as his children. So Christian freedom is less about what we're able to do and more about who we're able to access. That, that's really the thrust of Christian freedom. That Christian freedom is that we have access to God as our Father. When Paul says we're called to freedom, he's telling us that we get to run to the Father. We get to enter His courts. We get to dwell with God. Our freedom is unfettered access to the presence of the living God. And what a freedom. What better freedom could I offer you? You're like, well, I might would rather have freedom from something else. This is the best freedom, that you have freedom to access God. That you have freedom to be with God. When we have Christian freedom then, what will we do with it? Well, Paul lays out in verses 13 through 15, I think, two competing views of freedom. One is a misperception of Christian freedom that gives license to do whatever we like. And I'm, I'm going to call that today freedom to lose. <laughs> that we have the freedom to lose. <laughs> and then there is a correct perception that enables us to love God, and that's a freedom to love. It's the two competing views, whether we're going to lose or whether we're going to love. So let's look back at, at verse 13. Verse 13 says, You were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. I love that God wants us to be free. Right? It, it's not our like begging God for it. It's God calling us to it. Like, God, you were called to freedom. God has desired your freedom. He called you to it. He didn't call you as slaves, though in many ways, freedom is us saying, God, I want to be your slave. I want to submit to you. I want to put myself under your authority. But he didn't call us as slaves. He called us as children. Paul even references this adoption by calling us brothers. I mean, how are we even called brothers here? We're brothers by the blood of Christ. It's, it's our adoption. It's our childhood in God. But when you use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, and here in this passage, we want to keep remembering, like, what is Paul saying by flesh? Like, he's not just talking about your skin, not just the thing that covers your bones. When he's talking about flesh, he's talking about that we are born into sin. It's our sin nature that we inherit from Adam and Eve. It's passed down from generation to generation, this flesh when you use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, you're using your freedom to lose. Paul was fighting a mindset in the early church that freedom in Christ was a license to sin. It was freedom to do whatever you like. You could participate in everything the world offered, and the grace of God would cover those choices. I mean, you could imagine the, uh, the temptation of this type of religion— you mean this is a religion that says I can do whatever I want and then still like have uh, then be saved? That's great. I mean, even some of the pagan religions would have said you've got to follow these rules. So here, if I can do whatever I want and, and get away with it, then that's great. It's, it's just license to sin. 
He said, that's not, that's not, that's not the grace of God. That's not the freedom we're talking about. In his letter to the Romans, he approached this issue with a question. Paul said, what, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He said, no, of course not, by no means. So this in Galatians is the same issue. Your freedom was given to you for something more glorious than to dishonor God with your body and your choices. Your freedom is not just a ticket to do whatever you want. Your, your freedom is an opportunity instead, not for the flesh, but to honor God. That's the, that's the best thing that you could have. That's the true offer of salvation. Is not that I can sin however I want. I can make any bad decision I want and still be saved. It's that I might be able to give my life to the, to the kingdom of God. I might be able to give my life to be in the presence of God. That's the real offer of salvation. Your freedom was given to you for knowing and enjoying God. That's the only true gain of your freedom, is to know and enjoy God. In fact, everything else you try to achieve and gain in life outside of knowing God and loving God is really to your loss. And that's Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's what, that's what Paul's saying in the, to the church of Philippi. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You see the comparison that anything else in this life is just loss. Like, what do I want to give my life to? Like, I, I do have the freedom to lose. I have the freedom to give my life to things that are not valuable. But what Christ has bought our freedom for is something more. It's the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Freedom in Christ is not meant for our depravity, It's not meant for an opportunity for the flesh. It's meant to open the door to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. What a great privilege. What a great freedom that we might know Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the hope of our freedom. That's the goal of our freedom. But too often we use our freedom to lose. Look, look back at Galatians 5.15. Verse 15 is using freedom to lose. Look, it says, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. If we're using our freedom to bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. If our freedom in Christ makes us lack compassion, if it makes us cold and self-absorbed, and here is the temptation of freedom, that we might start to think it's all about me, then we've perverted that freedom. But, but this, verse 15, is the end of perverted freedom. It's selfishness. It's making the world all about me. And the church cannot be the church if we're only pursuing selfish gain or personal comfort or personal ease. If, if, my, if my personal comfort or my, my personal ease is the highest value in my life, if I believe that Christ has saved me so that I can be comfortable, then we're, we're not going to ever serve the church well. We're always going to hold the church back from what Christ has called the church to be. We might misconstrue our freedom to mean that we have the right to have what we want. That in our freedom, we should prioritize ourselves and our preferences 
Isn't that how sometimes we, we jokingly talk about America, and maybe not jokingly, we talk about our freedom in America? It's like, it's a free country, I can do what I want. Right? You say that with enough of a southern accent, and you've probably heard that before. It's a free country, do what I want. I think I've said it just like that before. Our freedom in Christ isn't a permit to do whatever we want, though. It's not that type of freedom. It's not we get to do whatever we want. That's selfishness. That's not freedom. If we have the freedom in Christ that we're presented here in Scripture, this freedom to access our Father, this freedom to be in His presence, then it's not the freedom to do whatever we want. It's the freedom to do whatever He wants. This selfishness instead of freedom will lead to division and anger and frustration. Instead of serving each other, we'll lobby for others to serve us. Selfishness is such a good replacement for freedom. I think there's a, there's a lot of times money is a replacement for protection in Christ. It's, it's, it's a replacement for trust in Christ. If, if, we, if I've got enough financial peace, then I don't need Christ for these things. I don't, I don't have to go to God in prayer over these needs. I've already got those needs covered. Right? Sometimes I can play that role. I, I think for freedom, selfishness plays the replacement role of freedom. That if I'm, I might think that this is freedom, but what I'm really experiencing is just pure selfishness. <laughs> that this is my freedom in Christ. No, that's, that's your selfishness. <laughs> that's, what you, that's what you think is freedom in Christ. Take a step back. Look at what are you achieving? Who are you serving? What is your motivation? God knows our sinfulness will lead us to sacrifice each other on the altar of our preferences. He knows that our sinfulness will lead us to sacrifice each other on the altar of our reputations or our desire for control or our comfort. So he warns us here, be careful that in your freedom you don't turn on each other as you pursue selfish desires. Don't bite each other. Don't devour each other because you're going to consume each other. Freedom is something better than that. The freedom that Christ affords you is something better than that. Instead, consider others more important than yourselves. That's that's the competing goal here. That's the true goal of freedom is that we might be able to consider others more important than ourselves. Instead, use your freedom to love. Instead, use your freedom to serve through love. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But what? But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The end of verse 13 and 14 set our eyes on the freedom to love. So instead of the freedom to lose, which anything other than honoring Christ and seeing him as our great treasure is we're choosing to lose. But here we get to love, the freedom to love. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I, I like to define love like this. This is, this is like my preference for defining love. I think it goes a long way. I think it accomplishes a lot. But here, here's what I say love is, is enjoying each other's joy or enjoying another person's joy. Enjoying another person's joy. Because love isn't about your own good. It's not about your own joy. It's about the joy of the other. But we don't just want other people to have joy in our, I don't know, in our 
uh, sadness. Like, it makes me sad for you to be happy. We want to enjoy their joy. We want to give ourselves for the sake of their joy. That, that's that's a, a good, helpful, practical part of what love is. It's not about our own good. It's about the good of the person your love is directed towards. That's how God talks about it in 1 Corinthians 13. His definition of love is way better than mine. So let's look at that one. 1 Corinthians 13 in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That might be one of the most read passages in, in Christianity, and I think it never gets old. But doesn't it always feel fresh and good to come back to what is, how does God define love? And don't you see how God defines love here is very other-focused. It's very outward-focused. It's not about what I receive from others. It's about how I can serve others well. It's not about your gain. It's about the other person. You're being patient because you're waiting on others. You're being kind because you're giving of yourselves to others. Love does not envy. It does not boast. Right? You're not being negative towards others. We could keep going down this list. It's all about how we're treating others well. It's not about how others must treat us. Isn't this how Jesus loved? I mean, look at 1 Corinthians 13 and tell me this isn't the definition of how Jesus treated us. How Jesus has, has treated us so compassionately with such great love. Jesus enjoyed your joy. He laid his life down for your gain. Look, you had, you had nothing to offer Jesus. You had nothing to offer Jesus. You still have nothing to offer Jesus that he, does, that he needs from you. He needs nothing from you. If we can establish that Jesus needs nothing from us, then it makes the gospel just burst with beauty and color. What an amazing thing that even though he needed nothing from us, that he gave himself to us, that he gave himself for us. God is completely satisfied in himself. He always has been. He wasn't lonely He didn't just decide one day that out of his loneliness he needed some company or wanted some company. He wasn't needy. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit has always been, will always be perfectly content in himself. He's enjoying himself even now. Our God isn't needy. He's kind. The motivation for our salvation wasn't God needing us It was God's kindness towards us. It was God's love towards us. And in his love, he shared himself with his creation. But in our freedom, we rejected God and chose to go our own way. This good God who made us to love us, we said, no, we'll try it our own way. Adam and Eve did it first, but every one of us has chosen that same path. Every one of us has said, no, God, we'd like to try it our own way first. And again, Jesus, not because of neediness, but because of love, looked at us with compassion. Like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. They came for us. We were lost in our sin. We didn't know which way was up. We had no way to save ourselves, so Jesus made a way. And the beauty of the gospel that Jesus made a way where there was none. He came as 
a man. He lived a perfect life, no rebellion, no selfishness, and he went to the cross to die for your sins. He took your sins with him, Christian, to the cross and suffered. Suffered not just the physical penalty of a cross, but suffered the spiritual one of taking your sins on himself. Since the punishment for sin is death, Jesus had to die. He took the punishment for all who would believe. That's what what the scripture says, for all who would believe. And he rose again so that we can be with him forever. So that we could enjoy the one who is perfectly joyful. So I struggle to be perfectly joyful. When things don't go my way, I don't know, have you guys ever had things that have not gone your way? I heard a pastor recently, <laughs> I was listening to a sermon this week, and I heard a pastor, he was talking to his congregation, and he said, look, you know, a sermon goes by a lot faster if you respond. And I was like, I don't know if that's, like, accurate, but I was like, I wonder, I wonder. Anyway, yeah, maybe I'm the only one who's ever felt, like, when things don't go my way, that things aren't, that I don't, have, I don't get to be joyful. Like, it's okay for me to sulk a little bit. There's times where things don't go my way, and I, I can tell myself, man, God's still in control. Like, I don't need to soak over this. Like, I, I just need to go enjoy Christ, even in this. And I can tell myself that all day, and it's like, I still can't get out of the funk. You know, y'all know what I'm talking about? Oh, cool. Y'all, y'all are doing it. That's good. Like, I appreciate that. Here, here is Christ who is perfectly joyful. He doesn't get in funks. He's perfectly joyful because he is the source of joy. Joy flows from him. And we get to be with him forever. We get to enjoy his joy forever. He receives all the glory for this. Yes, he did all of this for his glory. He is glorified when we enjoy him. But he didn't have to do this. He didn't need us to be glorious. God is no more glorious when we enjoy his joy, than he was when we weren't enjoying his joy. God is perfectly glorious with or without us. And yet, we get to enjoy his joy. Yet, we get to enjoy his glory. He chose to allow us to enjoy him. His love is too great for us to measure. It's too deep. It's too rich. It's not just measured by the cross, though. The, the cross would have been enough. His love for us is measured by your every breath. It's measured by the love he's put in your heart now. I mean, consider the way that you have felt loved by others. Consider the way that you feel love towards others. And consider that all the love that you might be able to stir up has been stirred up because God has shown you love. He continues to show us how immeasurable his love is. Why do I deserve to experience and know the love of God? Because he loves me. Isn't that incredible? Because he loves me, I deserve to feel his love. Now hear that carefully. Because he loves me, I deserve to feel his love. Because he is so good, he extends his love to me. It's not by my own merit. It's not by my own goodness. It's because of him. 
And it's with that love that I walk in his freedom. I am free to love like Christ has loved me. I don't have to protect my reputation or my preference or my glory because I'm so enraptured by the reputation and the glory of my Jesus. Because I'm entrenched in the same love that he gave to me. I can love others deeply and richly and giving of myself. I can rest. I can have peace. I can be joyful even in the sorrow. I can worship in that same love. Through love, Paul says, serve one another. And you don't have to worry about the law. All of these, all of these, all this first part of the letter that I'm writing to you, Paul's saying, all of this, this law that you're worried about, if you would just love one another, you're worried about circumcision, you're worried about all these things, just love each other. Love the way that Christ has loved you. You don't have to worry about the law. You don't have to worry about keeping these things. Loving each other will take care of itself. He says, for the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The law was meant to be a guardian, to keep you from hurting others, from from breaking the law of God. God's law was just about loving others. And he's saying, look, if you love your neighbor, love doesn't do wrong to a neighbor. Love serves your neighbor. This is the life's work of someone who has approached God as a child. Let's keep going back to what is that definition of Christian freedom? Is that we have the liberty to approach God as a child. The life's work of someone who has approached God as a child is to love others. Because when we approach God as a child, it's transformative. We don't get to go to God as a child and come back the same. We can't approach God and be in his presence with that type of comfort and freedom and then approach others with malice. How can we be forgiven so great a debt? How can we feel such great love to one who might forgive us of everything we've done wrong. And then go to someone else and treat them with hatred, without love. So we use our freedom to love. We use our freedom to serve, to enjoy each other's joy, to give of ourselves and to give up our rights, to build each other up rather than devour each other. Paul makes a clear connection here between service and love. When we serve each other, that is one of the most practical ways that we can love each other. It is through love that we serve one another. I mean, think about the ways that you might identify how someone loves you. I, mean, I think about any time you might ask a little kid, how do you know your, your mom loves you? What's a kid going to say? How, do, how does the kid know that his mom loves him? She cares for me. She, she makes me sandwiches. 
She, she washes my clothes. She cleans my room. Right? I mean, like all these things that moms do for their kids. She gives me hugs. Right? Those, are, those, are, those are things, that's, that's ways that we're served. How do you know your brother loves you? How, how do you know that the person sitting across the room for, from you right now loves you? Isn't serving one another the evidence of our love? There is more. We can go deeper, but at least we serve one another. At least service is evidence of our love. That's what Christ did. He came not to be served, but as evidence of his love, he came to serve. As the fruit of his love, he came to serve. It was out of love. It was through love that he came to serve us. And so, church, we're called to serve one another in our freedom. In our selfishness, we're able to take something like the freedom of Christ and pervert it and make it something that God didn't intend for it to be. It's about our power, about our authority. It's about us. But in God's goodness, he continues to remind us that he's given us freedom so that we can love him. That we can love him by serving him, by serving others. Isn't it beautiful that God has chosen in one of his ways to be loved? Is that we might serve each other? That's a really important way for you to go to work tomorrow is realizing one of the ways that you love God best in your life is to serve the people that you're working with and for. That's a really important way to go home today and spend time with your family. Is that one of the most important ways you can love God is by how you serve the people that God has given you in your home. How about your friends? I mean, I'd like to challenge you to start small here. Let's ask these questions. Look into your life and consider, how are you serving others? How are you serving others? Start at home. Are you intentionally serving your family? How? How are you serving the members of your family? Maybe you live alone. How are you loving your friends? How about your family that's not in your home? There's ways for us to apply all of this in our closest circles. But what about, what about church? How are you loving others in the church? For us to be a healthy church, we have to serve others well. And it can't be accidental. It has to be intentional. And I love to see it. I, I think as I ask those questions, I know of people in this room who intentionally serve their families so well. I know of people in this room who intentionally serve each other, their church, so well. I'm so encouraged by that, and I want to keep challenging you. Church, how can you serve each other well? It doesn't have to be extravagant. These are, these are possible simple, simple things. Think about this. How are you loving people who are different than you? Think about, do you have close relationships with people from other generations that aren't your family? I think that's a good question to ask. How do we develop those relationships more? What about people who don't look like you? What about people who don't have the same interest as you? How are we developing relationships? How are we serving others? What about those who are lost? How are we serving those who are lost? Your friends, your relatives, your acquaintances, your neighbors, your co-workers. I mean, to answer these questions isn't a chore. 
It's an exercise of freedom. Like, because we're free, we get to ask these questions. Because we're free, we get to serve others. And we don't have to worry about what that means for us. We get to serve others well. Anytime I make a list, I start thinking, this is legalistic. (laughs) How How am I answering these questions? How am I checking these boxes? And isn't that a danger of the Christian life? I mean, we've just spent a bunch of chapters in Galatians talking about the danger of the legalism and following laws. But there is a, there is a balance here of how we measure and weigh. Okay, we've got to hold ourselves accountable. How are we holding ourselves accountable to loving within our freedom? Well, let's, let's love well. Let's ask ourselves these questions. We're asking ourselves these questions because we remember that our freedom enables us to serve Christ by serving others. What do you want your life to be about? I I hope, church, that for you, that your life will be about serving Christ. That someone might look at you and say, hey, what's your life all about? My life's about serving Christ. And that the family feud board would ring that that's true. (laughs) Right? Like, yeah, I see that. Your life is about serving Christ. I'll finish with this question. Do you know the love of God? The love of God that makes serving others desirable to us. The love of God that makes serving others and not just being served one of our great desires. Do you know this love? Do you know this freedom? Have you been saved by his work on the cross? Have you ever been able to approach him with the liberty of a child? He loves you and he calls you to be saved. I really think that there might be some today listening who haven't given their life to Christ before, who've never trusted Jesus for their salvation, that might be looking for other ways to be saved. I want to challenge you, and it's not even my challenge. I think it's the challenge of your heart. It's the call of Christ to believe in Jesus right now for your salvation, to know this love, to trade the wasted things, the wasting away things of this world for the true and lasting love of a Savior. Would you close your eyes with me? I want to ask you, if if you would like to be saved, call out to Jesus. Call on Him right now. You don't have to say anything specifically. Call out to Him. Ask Him to save you. Tell Him that you know you can't save yourself that you want him to take control of your life, tell him that you want to surrender to him and him alone. If you're calling out to Jesus, I'm going to be in the back as we sing, and I'd love to meet you there. I'd love to talk with you about, about a life following Jesus, a life of salvation. God, we we thank you that you've made salvation possible. That you love us in our weakness. That we don't have to be strong enough to reach you because we know we can't be. I thank you for your word that shows us that you have given us freedom and that you've given us freedom for this beautiful cause of loving you and loving others. 
God, pray that as a church, we would be faithful to serve each other, that we would love each other well. God, pray that if there are asked, that if there are those in this room right now or listening who don't know you, God, draw their hearts to you. Give them the courage and boldness to talk about it, to turn to you. Jesus, we love you so much. We pray this in your name. Amen.